So 2 Timothy 2.13 says this, if we are faithless, he, that is God, remains faithful. The truth here is that God is always faithful in carrying out his promises. Our faithlessness will never thwart God's plans or purposes. His plans are going forward. You might think of it like a mighty steam engine on those two rails. The decision for us is whether or not we will yield ourselves to God's plan, whether or not we will jump on board and trust God, or will we be faithless and stubborn and prideful and waste our lives by trying to control them? That's the question. But regardless of how we respond, God is always faithful to what he has said. Like I mentioned, we began an Advent series last week. And I use that illustration of grandma's quilt that she knit together, that blanket that she knit together out of yarn. In the center of that blanket is a pattern. In the center of our Bible, there's a pattern, a story, if you will, the story of Christ. On the beginning edge of the blanket, those threads go all the way to the middle of that pattern. And if you were to take a thread at the middle and tug on it, you could see it starting all the way here at the beginning. If you were to pull that thread at the beginning of the blanket over here and tug on it, you would see it pull in the middle. The stories of the Bible are arranged in such a way that they're on a thread line. They're, they're building up to the coming of Christ, the Savior. And so we've been looking at the thread at the beginning. Last week was Abraham, and we saw how God made a promise to him that through Abraham, all the nations or all the tribes or all the family groups of the earth would be blessed. Through Abraham's line came Christ the Messiah. Through Christ is salvation that goes to all of the world. Here's the blessing. And so we were looking at the story of Abraham last week. This week we're moving forward on that thread line and we're in Isaiah chapter 7. Now the background to this particular story uh, is about a man named Ahaz. He's a wicked king. The degree of his wickedness is known in the other history books of the Bible. Isaiah is a book about prophecy primarily. So let me just give you some history from 2 Chronicles 28 to see how wicked Ahaz is. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. David wasn't his first father. It's, he's in the family tree of David. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Uh, Ahaz even made metal images for the Baals. That's a false god. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And notice this, he burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So there was Canaan, the land of Canaan, filled with idolatry, and God brought Israel into this land. Israel split into two kingdoms, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. They each had their line of kings, and Ahaz is a king in this southern kingdom. And his wickedness is like the nations that they had to drive out a couple hundred years earlier, filled with wickedness, to the point where they are offering their children in fire as sacrifices to the gods. So personally, this king in Jerusalem over God's people is a very wicked man. 
Now, politically, we know that he's in trouble as well. There are two main threats that Isaiah is, or that Ahaz is facing right now. To the north of him, I mentioned that split kingdom. So Israel is the northern kingdom. To the north of him is Syria and Israel. They have teamed up together and formed an alliance. And they are aiming to march south and conquer Judah. And so they march right up to Jerusalem. To make this a little bit more complicated here, the reason why these two kingdoms are marching south, and this will come up a little later, is that there is a larger kingdom, Assyria, to the east. And Assyria is just marching west and gobbling up territory after territory. And so here was Syria and Israel looking at Assyria coming, saying, we have to form an alliance. And not only do we need to form an alliance, but we need to conquer Judah and gain all of their resources and all of their soldiers. So they actually went south and started sacking the land. And in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, you read the story that Ahaz lost 120,000 of his soldiers to this enemy that's coming down. Not only did, they, did he lose 120,000 soldiers, but they took 200,000 people captive and led them up to Samaria. So Ahaz is not doing well. In verse 2, the Bible says that Ahaz is terrified. In verse 2, it says, when the house of David, that is the line of David that has come all the way down to Ahaz, his family line, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. We've seen some pretty good wind this last week. Uh, some trees were down along the road, branches were down. Uh, the tops of the trees are swaying back and forth. There's no stability there to the tops of those trees when those gusts are hitting 65 miles an hour. And that's where Ahaz's heart is. It's back and forth all over the place. He's looking at his army dwindle. He's looking at captives being taken. He's looking at this alliance that's coming from the north, coming down to the south. He's nearly lost control of everything in his life. So the Lord tells Isaiah, the prophet, in verse 3, he says, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son. Glad you haven't named any of your kids that. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So there's this upper pool in Jerusalem that is the water supply. It's their water tower in so many ways. And Ahaz is out there looking at his water, to, water supply to see how long they can last. And Isaiah is supposed to go there and have a conversation, and he brings his son. And his son being there, his son is a sign of a promise. His son's name means a remnant shall return. So not all is going to be lost. And here's Ahaz. Ahaz is panicked. His heart is all over the place. And here comes Isaiah to share a message with him. Now step back and just soak up the scene. And think about this as it relates to other scenes in the Bible. As you study the Bible, especially the Old Testament, 
In what kinds of situations is God's power most evident? As you think about stories in the Bible, in what types of stories is God's power most evident? Well, when you think about Noah, it's basically him against the rest of the world, and God's power is demonstrated there. When you think about Joseph later on in Genesis, here are his brothers who couldn't stand him. They sell him into slavery. There he is down in Egypt as a slave. All the odds are against him. As you go into Exodus, there's Moses who has to face the Pharaoh. There's Israel that has to face Egypt. There's Israel leaving Egypt pinned up against the Red Sea. God's power is on display over and over again in these stories where his people are weak and nearly defeated. This is how God shows up and shows himself to be faithful when his people are weak. And so here's another opportunity for God's power to shine brightly against a man's weakness. So there's five sections here that we'll unpack now moving forward. And the first section is simply God's instruction. God's instruction. So in verse 4, we see Isaiah coming with God's word to Ahaz. And Isaiah says to him in verse 4, Ahaz, be careful be quiet. One translation reads, calm down and simply be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. There's the instruction from God. Do not be fearful of your circumstances. And why is Ahaz not to be fearful of his circumstances? As you continue reading, we get God's perspective of this northern alliance that's coming down. What's God's perspective? He says here in verse 4, do not let your heart be faint because, here's God's perspective, these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. How does God see Ahaz's enemies? They're two smoldering stumps there. What does he mean by that? You've sat around a bonfire early in the night. The logs at the base are intense with heat. The flames are going up into the air. You don't want to touch those logs, but by the end of the night, nearly all of the logs are burned down, and there are just a couple of pieces of wood. They're sitting in the fire ring. There might be a glowing ember, a lot of gray ash. They're smoldering away into the night. They're not intimidating. They're pretty harmless for the most part. In Ahaz's eyes, these kingdoms on the northern end are like threatening bonfires. But in God's eyes, he could just lick his fingers and pinch out the birthday candle. That's it to him. In our lives, the problems that we face can feel like raging fires. Problems too big for us to put out. There's intimidation. There's fear that is stoked up in our hearts. But to God, it's nothing more than a smoldering stump that he could spit on and just cause it to go out. And so he says to his people, calm down, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. That's a message for us. Second, we see God's knowledge in verses 5 through 8, God's knowledge. And look at how God knows everything and lets Ahaz know that he's aware of everything taking place. In verse 5, Isaiah continues this word from God, Syria with Ephraim, that's the name of the northern kingdom, 
And the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. So their plan, the northern alliance, is to march down, sack Jerusalem, and set up a king whose name is Tabil. God is very aware of the circumstances that Ahaz is facing. He is all-knowing of not only what is taking place right now, but the plans for what are in the future. And in verse 7, God simply responds by saying this. Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. Here's man's plans. This is what you're facing. And I want you to know it's not going to take place. Verse 8, God continues, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, is going to be shattered from being a people. Now, this ought to be good news for Ahaz. That enemy of yours, Ahaz, is going to be crushed and defeated within 65 years. And again, if you read the history books, God didn't even wait that long. Within three years, Syria falls apart. And within 10 years, the northern kingdom falls apart. And the point is that God is very well aware of everything that is taking place in the life of Ahaz. And God is very well aware of what is taking place in your life and what will be taking place in your life. Whether it's the next three years, the next 10 years, or the next 65 years. God is speaking to Ahaz saying, I know everything that's going on in your life. And this is now pointing us to the bigness and the glory of who God is. He's very aware of what is happening in the lives of his people. Now for more encouragement here, if we've been reading through Isaiah chapter by chapter, this statement from God has a very weighty background to it. The very previous chapter to this is Isaiah chapter 6. And if you're reading through it chronologically, you're getting to chapter 6 and you're seeing this great big view of who God is. Let's take a moment just to see who he is. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is Adonai the one who is sovereign over all things. I saw the Adonai sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe, that is like the hem, the very bottom of his robe, filled the temple. The temple is maybe three stories tall on the inside. You can look up to the top of our ceiling. That's maybe three stories, considering a house. The train of his robe now just the bottom part of his robe fills this three-story temple. Now, some of you have bathrobes. Some of you might have the real fluffy ones where at the bottom, the hem is folded up and there's this three-inch fold that goes across the bottom. Let's say the hem is three inches. Three inches, one inch for each story. If Isaiah's vision is sort of proportionate to that, we're basically talking one inch for every story of how big and massive this king is in Isaiah's vision. I'm roughly six feet tall, 72 inches. 
Here's a king who could be 72 inches. Give him a story for each inch. And he's 72 stories tall sitting on this mighty throne that Isaiah looks up. And you can imagine him seeing the hem of his robe and continuing to look up and seeing the fabric of his robe and continuing to look up and seeing, wow, that is one huge leg. And it's like this king sitting on this massive throne with his arms folded over on the the arm of the chair. And he's looking up and beholding this king. And notice what the text continues to say in verse 2. Above him stand these seraphim. These are angelic figures that have six wings. And with two of the wings, they're covering their faces. With two of the wings, they're covering their feet. And they're flying around this throne that is stories up into the air. And they're shouting back and forth to one another, holy, 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 back and forth. That three times holy, that thrice holy, that that picture of completion. When you see holy mentioned three times, it's the picture of completion. And they're shouting this back and forth. These These are the spokesmen around the throne of God declaring who he is. And then not only that, but they're saying that he is whom? The Lord of hosts. Now, here's another name for God. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Lord Sabaoth is the Lord of armies. And here's the Lord of armies sitting on his throne with these angelic figures screaming out about his holiness. And then they finish up their chant by saying, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now think about that for just a moment. How much space does it take to hold all of your glory? You know, you're pretty glorious, aren't you? Um, Maybe your office, there's the aura of your glory when we walk in. Maybe your house, ooh, we feel some glory from this person. The whole earth, the whole earth, Lake Michigan, filled up with the glory of God. The Grand Canyon, filled with the glory of God. The Pacific Ocean, filled with the glory of God. The whole earth is filled with the glory of this king. That's who is speaking in chapter 7 to Ahaz. And that's who's speaking to you and I. That's who our God is. God speaks. And the question is, will little Ahaz, this little king in the southern kingdom, get his eyes on the bigness of God Or is he going to be focused on this northern alliance made up of two kings and this Assyrian empire? Big problems, but they're smoldering stumps in God's eyes. Will you believe that your enemy, your fear, is no match for God? There's a next step. It's basically God's calling here. In verse number 9, we're moving into God's calling At the end of verse 9, God says to Ahaz, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. What is God calling Ahaz to? He's calling to him to belief. Believe me, Ahaz. Unless Ahaz comes to the place where he trusts in God as the Lord of armies, the almighty God who sits on the throne and is glorious in all of the earth, Until Ahaz gets to that point, his heart is going to be back and forth like the tops of those trees. 
And God says to him, you won't be firm at all. Your faith will be flabby. So we live between these two poles. We live between the pole of faith where we say, God, you have this. And this other pole of, God, I feel like I have to control this under my own strength. What opposite poles? There's the God of armies who can be the object of our faith. Or there is us whom we can trust in. And this is Ahaz's dilemma here. And what he's leaning into is himself more and more. In fact, as you read the history books, what he does is, as he faces this northern alliance coming down, he sends off messengers to Assyria and says, hey, I'll pay you off if you come over here and defend me. I'll give you tribute. I'll give you gold from the temple. I'm just going to pay you off. You come over here and help me. I can't remember what commentator it was. I was trying to go back and find it. But the commentator said, it's like a little mouse being attacked by two rats who calls in a cat to fix his problem. What a mess. And that's what it does. It just complicates things over and over again. Instead of trusting God with his problem, he leans into himself. He does not need the strength of Assyria. He needs the Lord of hosts. You don't need the strength of this world, folks. You and I need the Lord of hosts to lead us through life. But here is God calling Ahaz to depend on him. Here is God calling this little weakling, saying, come to me and depend on me. The whole earth is filled with my glory. I can handle your problem. And in this, we see the heart of God. Think about this for just a moment. God calls us to trust him, to depend on him, to use him, Here's how Ray Ortland puts it in his commentary. He says, God is attracted to weakness and need and honesty. He is repelled by our self-assured pride. Like, is that who we are? Are we willing to say, yes, I am weak, I am needy, here's the honest situation here, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it? God is attracted to weakness. That's where he comes to meet needs. You think about little Hannah in the temple just praying to God, asking for a child. God came and met her there. There's David, the shepherd boy, going down to face the giant in the valley. God meets him there. There's Daniel opening up his window, being willing to pray in the face of the Babylonian king. God's going to meet him there. God loves it when we are weak and in our weakness we say, okay, Lord, I can't do this. This is an opportunity for you. Is that your bent? Now, one of the lies that Satan will throw at you is, I'm not that weak. I need to be in control. I need to fix this because of what people will think about me. And when that lie creeps into our thinking and starts to lead our decision-making, what happens is that we who aim to be in control either destroy the people around us or we destroy ourselves. We destroy the people around us because we can't soak enough out of them to get what we want, and so we twist them and wring them dry until they're broken. And then we destroy ourselves with fear and anxiety because... 
we've only turned inward to ourselves, depending on ourselves. It's all rooted in pride. And so God is appealing to each of us, trust me, come to me, follow me, obey me, and you will stand. But walk away from me. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. You will be flabby. You will be shaking in the wind like the tops of the trees. Live by faith in God this week. So God moves on. Number four, God's challenge in verse 10. In order to lead Ahaz along, God tells him now, ask for a sign, Ahaz. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Now notice, God is speaking to Ahaz and still calling himself Ahaz's God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. God is giving Ahaz the opportunity of a lifetime. Ask for a great big miracle to take place, as big as you want it to be. As high as you want it to be. You want the sun, moon, and stars to stop? You just ask for a sign. You want the clouds to just dump out hail tomorrow precisely at noon? You ask for a sign. I'll give it to you. But in verse 12, Ahaz responds with this self-righteous answer. I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. I mean, doesn't that sound good? Like, Ahaz, I'm willing to give you a sign. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to put you to the test. I don't want to ask you to have to work. That sounds all good and religious-y kind of stuff. So reverent, so honoring. God, no, no, not right now. But that's not really what's going on with Ahaz. What's going on is he does not want to believe in God. He doesn't want his life going forward to be about trusting God. Because to trust God now is a whole new direction in life for him. It's going to mean submitting his life to God. He's the same guy who is surrendering his sons and sacrificing them in the fire. This is going to have to be repentance in his life if he asks God for a sign. It means that going forward, God is going to have to be his God. And Ahaz doesn't want it. It's this self-destructive mode that so many people settle into where God is willing to meet them where they are and them saying, nope, it's not enough. I can't go there. We've all been there. We've all had something come into our lives that is bigger than us. And the priority that we had with God earlier starts to slip. Because the problem becomes more time-consuming, energy-consuming, emotionally consuming, and soon our quiet time slips, soon our prayer time slips, soon our worship patterns of God slip, and before we know it, we've gone way down here to this other pole of dependence on ourselves. and we look at it and we say, how did we get here? What we need to do is start walking in obedience and trusting God with all things, and we're like, but I can't. I can't because I don't have the time to do that. Or I can't because God really isn't going to fix my problem right now. It's this whole mentality of I have to do this and I just don't have time to repent of that and walk with God. Now in verse 13, Isaiah responds to Ahaz's false worship here. He says in verse 13, Hear then, O house of David. Again, another name for the kings here that Ahaz is in that line. Is it 
too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Now you notice earlier he was your God. And now we move down to verse 13 where he's not your God anymore. This relationship seems to be done. You, you have declared what you want and Ahaz is now marching after his own Lord, after his own God. So here's God's response in verse 14. It's God's commitment. This is number five, God's commitment in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Ahaz, here's your sign from God. A virgin-born child is coming that is going to point to the greatness and the glory of God. Now, admittedly, this verse is a challenge for us, isn't it? I mean, we're thinking about life in 700 B.C. or thereabouts. And it sounds as though a virgin in Ahaz's day is going to conceive, bear a son, and his name is going to be called Emmanuel. And that doesn't really happen until 700 years later. So what's going on here? Well, there is talk that when God makes a promise immediately, there can be little smatterings of fulfillment that come in the present that can be fully poured out in the future. So in Ahaz's day, here's my take on it at least, there was a son that was born. In chapter 8, we see this Emmanuel again. Look at chapter 8, verse 8. And it, that is the Assyrians, will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So Assyria was prophesied to come in, this huge empire. They came in and they came all the way up to Jerusalem during the day of Hezekiah. And there's Hezekiah pinned inside of Jerusalem and he's talking to Isaiah the prophet, and Isaiah says, don't fear, God has got this. And overnight, God sent his mighty angel to be with them, and 185,000 warriors from the Assyrians were slaughtered, and God sent the Assyrians back to Nineveh practically overnight. It was like God was with them. It could be one of those smatterings of fulfillment that come in Isaiah's day. But we know that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in our Bible, the full fulfillment has not been dumped out yet. That doesn't take place until the time of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. She, that is Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will bring salvation. He will save his people from what, though? He will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here is the prophecy fully dumped out in Matthew chapter 1, fully fulfilled. And this is where Isaiah 7.14 then lands for us. It lands for us in the coming of Jesus. It lands for us in that Jesus has come to us in our Ahaz-like moment. Humanly speaking, there was nothing Ahaz could do to defeat 
or to rescue himself from the enemy. And here is Jesus coming to save his people from their enemy. We face an enemy. We face a dual enemy coming at us, an alliance coming at us. It's sin and death. Romans 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6, 23 says now that sin teams up and with death, and here we face the, these two enemies that we can't defeat in ourselves. We stand before God with sin on our lives, and there's death which we all face. But here is Jesus, Emmanuel, who will save his people from their sins. The guilt of sin in our lives is so obvious, just like that army that was marching down south to Ahaz. Ahaz could see the enemy, and all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we see our sins. It's not always sins that are acted out physically, but each of us see our sinful hearts. To one degree or another, we see the sinful tendencies, the selfishness. We see the thoughts and we say, God, like, I'm guilty of that. That enemy has got me right there. And he says, don't fear. Be weak, but be firm in the faith. And if you're firm in the faith, I will meet you where you're at with a Savior. Here's the Emmanuel, God with us. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Let your heart not be faint. Because I've come to you with the Savior. And for the people of God, we know that this fear does not need to be fatal anymore. Fear is another opportunity now for God's faithfulness. I see my sin, and there is that flame of fear that starts to grow. There it is again. There's my sin again. There's it. Get, get that thing out of here. I'm tired of it. Why does it keep popping up? Well, I can try to fix it with all of my failing strength or I can come over to the faithfulness of God. And that's where Matthew 1 comes. Here is God with us where Jesus has come as a mighty warrior to save us from our sins. The solution to our sinfulness is not fear. It's by Continue, continuing to come to this one true king whose glory fills the earth. You might be a non-Christian. This is the message that you need to hear. My sin, your sin, leads to eternal death. It leads to the judgment of God. But here's a mighty warrior who came to us in our desperation and willingly surrendered his life and took the judgment of God upon himself. He bore the judgment of God. He deflected it away from us. And those who trust in this Savior for the forgiveness of sins are saved. No longer fearful of sin because of the faithfulness of God. And Christians, as we look back and we see God has promised over and over again, he is a promise-keeping God. In fact, we've seen, we've said this, that throughout Scripture, what is that command that appears approximately 365 times? Do not fear, fear not, fear not, fear not, over and over again. Why? It's not because of our strength. 
It's because of God's faithfulness. And here is the story of Ahaz and this bigger backdrop of God coming into Ahaz's life and saying, let me show you yet again how faithful I am. So when you experience the next fearful event in life, instead of cowering and shrinking back and your heart just screaming, oh no, what am I going to do? We get down on our knees and we thank God for the promises that he's given to us. The God of Isaiah 6 who sits on the throne, who has the seraphim calling back, holy, 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 the thresholds of the temple are just trembling at the sound of his name. This God came in the flesh and he died and rose again and defeated sin and death. And so now when the next fearful thing comes up, we don't have to sit back and cry, oh no, we can say, okay, God, you are faithful. You are faithful. We see it over and over again throughout scripture that God loves to enter into the lives of those who are weak and trembling because he is faithful. Will you believe? This is the joy of Christmas. God has come to be with us. He's faithful to his promises. He will be faithful to you. Let's pray.